Simon & Schuster Audio presents How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen A Survival Guide to Life with Children Ages 2 to 7 By Joanna Faber and Julie King Read by Michelle Pauk and January Lavoie With Gibson Fraser, Molly Pope, Rebecca Ross, Heather Alicia Sims, and Candace Thaxton A person's a person, no matter how small. Horton the Elephant, Dr. Seuss. The way we talk to our children becomes their inner voice. Peggy O'Mara. Forward. Adele Faber. The first hint I had of the passion that would fuel the creation of this book came when it was my turn to carpool the authors to nursery school. I put my daughter Joanna in the car, drove around the corner to collect Julie, and then two more blocks to pick up Robbie. Soon, all three children were buckled up in the back seat, happily chattering with each other. Suddenly, the mood shifted and a heated debate erupted. Robbie. He had no reason to cry. He wasn't even hurt. Julie. Maybe his feelings were hurt. Robbie. So what? Feelings don't matter. You have to have a reason. Joanna. Feelings do matter. They're just as important as reasons. Robbie. No, they're not. You have to have a good reason. I listened and marveled at these three little people. It wasn't hard to figure out where each of them was coming from. Robbie's mother was a serious, no-nonsense woman. Julie's mom, a piano teacher, loved talking with me about the discoveries I was making in my parenting workshops with the renowned child psychologist, Dr. Chaim Gannat. There was always so much for us to think about and try out with our children. Sometimes bits of our discussions would find their way into the book Elaine Maislish and I had decided to write together. We had each experienced such profound changes in our own lives and witnessed so many transformations in the lives of others in our group. It seemed wrong not to share our journey with as many parents as possible. Best of all, we had Dr. Gannat's blessing. He read our early drafts and offered his editorial support. Fast forward 25 years. Our first book, Liberated Parents, Liberated Children, your Guide to a Happier Family has been published. It wins the Christopher Award for Literary Achievement Affirming the Highest Values of the Human Spirit. Seven more books soon follow. How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk and Siblings Without Rivalry become bestsellers and are published in more than 30 languages. The little girls I drove to nursery school are grown, Married, and each has three children of her own. Each has lived abroad and explored different areas of study. I still have to smile when I remember Julie telling me about an exchange she had at her first internship as a law clerk at a legal aid agency. She was presenting a case for a lawsuit that appeared to be based on a simple misunderstanding. Can we get them together to talk? I'm sure if they could listen to each other's point of view, they could come to an understanding. 
The boss was impatient with her naivete. We don't do that. You can't talk to the opposing party. It was at this point, Julie said, that she started to think she might be in the wrong profession. And I have to smile when I remember a hurried phone call from Joanna after a frustrating day with the special needs children in her classroom. The kids won't stop fighting. It's chaos. I can't get through a lesson. What do I do? I drew a blank. Well, you know what I usually do when I'm stuck, but... Oh, you mean problem solving. Okay, thanks. Bye. And she hung up. She swung into action the next morning, and we were thrilled to incorporate the amazing results of her new tactic when Elaine and I were writing how to talk so kids can learn at home and in school. Finally, each woman found herself responding to the urgent need for parenting workshops in her part of the world. Joanna on the East Coast, Julie on the West. After years of helping parents, many of whom had young children who presented a wide variety of challenges, they decided to join forces and produce a book of their own. How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, a survival guide to life with children ages two to seven. Elaine and I expect you'll be delighted and enlightened by all the discoveries you'll make. Happy listening. How it all started. Julie. My two-year-old son peed on the carpet under the crib. Again. What to do? My degrees in public policy and law were of no use. I was surprised by how quickly I could be brought to my knees by a small person too young to drive a car or tie his own shoes. I didn't plan a career as a parent educator. I figured I'd be a mom on the side as I advanced my professional career. But when I was told that my first child had significant developmental delays, as did my second, I realized that parenting was not going to be an on-the-side activity for me. I found myself committed to endless rounds of appointments with medical specialists and physical therapists and advocating for children with neurodevelopmental differences. Lucky for me, I grew up with a best friend, Joanna, whose mom, Adele Faber, took a parenting workshop with the late great child psychologist, Haim Gannott. Her mom and mine are also close friends, and they tested out their new parenting strategies on us. Little did I know that these methods would become a lifesaver for me so many years later, when I faced the challenges of parenting my own three children. When the head of the parent education committee at my son's preschool was looking for someone to organize an event for parents, I volunteered to lead a workshop based on Adele's book, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen. My first eight-week group was such a success that everyone insisted I continue to lead the group for another eight weeks, and another, and we ended up meeting for four and a half years. Through word of mouth, other people asked me to lead workshops, which snowballed into a career I had never imagined. Meanwhile, my friendship with Joanna continued. In many ways, she and I are quite different. She loves the outdoors and dogs. You will find many references to dogs throughout our book. While I love to sit at the piano playing classical music, which is why Joanna's references to pop music often go over my head. Yet I've always felt I can talk to her about anything, 
and she really listens and understands. Even though we now live on opposite coasts, we've spent the last year writing together, and the result is this book. I hope you find this information as life-transforming as I have, and I hope you have as many laughs listening to it as we had writing it. I'll introduce you to my three kids in Chapter 5, where you can hear more about the experience of parenting and teaching non-neurotypical children. How It All Started Joanna I have a confession to make. I was raised by a mother who wrote best-selling books about parenting. My two brothers and I grew up in a family where my mother and father used a language of respect for their children's ideas and emotions. Even our most ferocious conflicts were resolved by problem-solving rather than punishment. So parenting for me should be a snap. I have no excuses. Then again, I didn't think I would need any. Not only had I been raised by practically ideal parents, I had plenty of experience of my own. I have read and studied extensively in the field of child development and psychology. I have a degree in special education and 10 years of experience working with both native English speakers and bilingual children in West Harlem as a teacher in the New York City school system. I was going to be a natural with my own kids. I remember taking my first little baby to the supermarket, talking and sweetly singing to him about the apples and bananas. A fellow shopper leaned in and generously offered me some advice. Enjoy him now before he learns to talk. What an awful woman. I couldn't wait for my little darling to express his amazing thoughts to me in words. Fast forward a few years and there I was, back in the grocery store. I now had three young children in tow, and on this day, they were being particularly well-behaved. The two younger ones were riding in the cart, and the older one was helping me get items off the shelf. A grandfatherly man stopped, looked at these adorable kids, and said, You are so good. I'll bet your mother never yells at you. It was a golden moment. My oldest looked at him wide-eyed and said, no, she yells at us all the time, for no reason. What happened here? Who were these less than perfect creatures? And where was that ideal mom who would never yell for no reason, no less, all the time? What I discovered as a parent was that there is a certain 24 hours a day relentlessness to caring for young children that makes it hard to think straight. Even though I thought I would be a natural, when it comes to handling all those constant needs and emotions day after day, night after night, there is no such thing as easy or perfect. Sometimes, simple survival is a good goal. As a new mom, I certainly did not feel that I had much wisdom to share about raising children. I didn't even feel particularly competent. As a matter of fact, it seemed best to keep quiet about my own parentage. I kept a low profile and neglected to mention to the other moms in my social circle that my mother was a famous author. When my children were wailing, whimpering, or whacking each other, I preferred to deal with the situation without having to wonder if anyone was watching me and thinking, hmm, her mother wrote a book on parenting? It turns out that at least one person was watching and noticing. 
One day at a playgroup, my friend Kathy said to me, Joanna, I have this book that you would love. It's just your style. It really reminds me of the way you talk to your kids. It's called How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. At that point, I figured it would be fruitless to feign ignorance. I admitted that my mother wrote the book. Kathy was delighted. She called out to the group of mothers, Hey, guys, Joanna's mother wrote this great book, and she never told us. And so I was outed, my secret identity revealed. Soon after that, Kathy told me she was in charge of organizing a lecture series for her church group, and she asked me if I would give a presentation about my experience growing up as the daughter of Adele Faber. As the date approached, I began to hope for some disaster at the church. Nothing that would hurt anybody, just a little flooding or perhaps a well-timed power outage. What was I going to say to these people? I felt woefully inadequate to represent myself as a paragon of parenting. I didn't even want to think about it. But they were expecting me to say something up there. The forecast looked good. No hurricanes or blizzards on the horizon. I was getting desperate. Finally, it struck me that I did have something to offer. Kathy had noticed it when she commented on my style. I'm not the perfect parent. I get into plenty of conflicts with my children, but I do have skills to help get us through those conflicts, and I use them every day. I gave my talk at the church. Afterward, there was great enthusiasm among the parishioners about forming a parenting group. I found myself leading parenting workshops and then giving more lectures and eventually traveling across the country giving presentations to parents, teachers, social workers, and healthcare providers. This audiobook is the result of many requests by parents for more examples and strategies to use with very young children. Terrible two-year-olds, truculent three-year-olds, ferocious four-year-olds, foolhardy five-year-olds, self-centered six-year-olds, and the occasional semi-civilized seven-year-old. This work represents my re-immersion into the pool of knowledge that I grew up with and additional insights about making our way as parents in the 21st century. Part of this process included collaborating with my childhood friend Julie King, who encouraged me to lead when I felt like I was just finding my own way. The following work contains the very hands-on insights of Julie and myself and all the parents and teachers who trusted us and shared their stories. We are presenting this work to you in two parts. Part one lays out the basic equipment you'll be glad to have in your toolbox when a youngster goes haywire. Part two addresses the specific challenges that we found to be the most common themes of early childhood. Eat, get dressed, get out the door, stop hitting, go to sleep, and shows how the parents in our groups used these tools in various creative and unusual ways. We hope this audiobook will provide you with a deep well of ideas that you can dip into and pull up by the cool, refreshing bucketful when you feel you've run dry. A note from the authors. We struggled with the question of whose voice to use as a narrator. It quickly became clear that writing I, Joanna, and I, Julie, would not work. 
We'd tried to create a composite character with composite children, but it didn't feel authentic. We wanted to use real stories from our own families. As you'll see, while we collaborated on the entire book, we settled on writing in our individual voices. You will hear the name Joanna or Julie under each chapter heading to let you know who is narrating that section. All the stories told by characters in our book actually happened. Names and other identifying details have been changed. But in all cases, real live children and real live parents and professionals really did say and do these things. Part 1. The Essential Toolbox Chapter 1. Tools for Handling Emotions What's all the fuss about feelings? When kids don't feel right, they can't behave right. Joanna Most of the parents in my workshops have been pretty impatient with this first topic, helping children deal with difficult feelings. They'd like to move right on to the second session, how to get your kids to do what you tell them to do. Not that we don't care about how our kids feel. It's just not generally the first priority for a frazzled parent. Let's face it, if they did as they were told, things would go so smoothly we'd all feel great. The problem is, there's just no good shortcut to getting a cooperative kid. You can try, but you will likely end up knee-deep in a bog of conflict. Think of those times when you're very glad you're not being filmed for reality television. The times when you're screaming at a kid so hard your throat aches. You've just told him for the hundredth time not to shove his little sister near the stove or pull the elderly dog's ears. He will bite you and you will deserve it. And your child remains oblivious. I'm guessing those were times when you were feeling tired, stressed, or upset about something else entirely. If the same incident had occurred when you were feeling more cheerful, you would have shown grace under pressure. Maybe scooped up the little sister or the long-suffering dog with a quick kiss or a scratch under the chin and redirected your young savage with an understanding chuckle. So what's the point of all this? The point is that we can't behave right when we don't feel right. And kids can't behave right when they don't feel right. If we don't take care of their feelings first, we have little chance of engaging their cooperation. All we'll have left going for us is our ability to use greater force. And since we'd like to reserve brute force for emergencies such as yanking children out of traffic, we've got to face this feelings thing head on. So let's dig in. Most of us don't have too much trouble accepting our children's positive feelings. That's pretty easy. Gosh, Jimmy is your best friend in the world? You love daddy's pancakes? You're excited about the new baby? How nice. Glad to hear it. It's when our children express a negative feeling that we run into trouble. What? You hate Jimmy? But he's your best friend. You plan to punch him in the nose? Don't you dare. How can you be sick of pancakes? They're your favorite. You want me to give the baby back? That is a terrible thing to say. 
Don't ever let me hear something like that come out of your mouth again. We don't want to accept negative feelings because they're so, well, negative. We don't want to give them any power. We want to correct them, diminish them, or preferably make them disappear altogether. Our intuition tells us to push those feelings away as fast and hard as possible. But this is one instance in which our intuition is leading us astray. My mother always tells me, if you aren't sure what's right, try it out on yourself. Let's do that. Consider your reaction to this situation. Imagine you wake up feeling lousy. You didn't get enough sleep last night and you can feel a headache coming on. You stop to get some coffee before going to work at the preschool and run into a coworker. You say to her, boy, I don't want to go into work today and face all those loud, quarrelsome kids. I just want to go back home, take some Tylenol, and spend the day in bed. What would your reaction be if your friend denied your feelings and scolded you for your lousy attitude? Hey. Stop complaining. The kids aren't that bad. You shouldn't talk about them that way. Anyway, you know you'll have a good time once you get there. Come on, let me see that smile. Or gave you some advice. Look, you've got to pull yourself together. You know you need this job. What you should do is get rid of that coffee, drink some soothing herbal tea, and meditate in the car before school starts. Or perhaps a gentle philosophical lecture. Hey, no job is perfect. That's just life. There's no use complaining about it. Dwelling on the negative is not productive. How about if she compared you with another teacher? Look at Liz. She's always cheerful about going to work. And do you know why? Because she is ultra prepared. She always has really great lesson plans ready weeks ahead of time. Would questions be helpful? Are you getting enough sleep? What time did you get to bed last night? Do you think you might be getting a cold? Are you taking vitamin C? Have you been using those Sani wipes they have available at the school so you won't catch germs from the kids? Here are some of the reactions we get when we present this kind of scenario in our group. I'm never talking to you again. This is no friend of mine. You have no clue. I hate you. Go to hell. Blah, blah, blah. Shut up. I'll never talk to you about my problems again. I'm sticking to topics like the weather from now on. I feel guilty for making such a big deal about this. I wonder why I can't handle the kids. I feel pitiful. I hate Liz. I feel like I'm being interrogated. I feel judged. You must think I'm stupid. I can't say it out loud, but I'll tell you the initials. F you. That last response perfectly expresses the intensity of hostility that we sometimes experience when someone denies our negative feelings. We can go quickly from unhappiness to rage when talked to this way, and so can our children. So what would be helpful to hear in a situation like this? My guess is that some of your misery would be soothed if someone simply acknowledged and accepted your feelings. Oh, it's awful to have to go to work when you don't feel well, especially when you work with kids. 
What we need is a nice snowstorm, or maybe a very small hurricane that would shut the school down for just one day. When their feelings are acknowledged, people feel relieved. She understands me. I feel better. Maybe it's not so bad. Maybe I can handle it. Do we actually talk to our kids this way? Correcting them, scolding them, interrogating them, and lecturing them when they express a negative feeling? The group has no trouble coming up with examples. Here are some of the most common. Denial of feelings. You don't really hate school. You'll have fun once you get there. You know you like playing with the blocks. Has any child ever responded? Oh, yeah, you're right. You just reminded me that I do love school. Philosophy. Look, kiddo, life isn't fair. You've got to stop it with the he got more, hers is better. How likely is it that your child will reply? Gee whiz, I was all upset, but now that you explained to me that life isn't fair, I feel so much better. Thanks, Dad. Questions. Why did you throw sand when I just told you not to? What child says, hmm, why did I? I guess there's no good reason. Thanks for pointing that out. It won't happen again. Comparison. Look at how Olivia is sitting quietly and waiting her turn. Whose child would say, oh gosh, I will try to be more like Olivia. It's more likely she'll feel like giving Olivia a bonk on the head. Lecture. Why do you always want a toy as soon as your brother starts playing with it? You had no interest in it a minute ago. You just want to take it away from him. That's not very nice. Anyway, that's a toy for babies and you're a big girl now. You should be more patient with your little brother. And where is the child who responds? Do go on, dear mother. I'm learning so much from this speech. Let me just jot down a few notes on my iPad so I can go over these points later. Okay, okay, I hear you say. But it's easy to be empathetic with a grown-up friend. Grown-ups are civilized. Little kids aren't like that. They are way less logical. My friends don't keep me up at night. At least not most of them. I don't have to get my friends to go to school or brush their teeth or stop hitting their siblings. Pretending my child is an adult is not going to cut it. If an adult friend behaved like my child, she would not be my friend for long. All right, I get it. We can't treat our children like we treat our adult friends. But if we want their willing cooperation instead of their hostility, we need to find a way to use the same principle of acknowledging feelings when a person is in distress. Let's peer into our toolbox and see how we can modify our stockpile for use with the younger set. Tool number one, acknowledge feelings with words. The next time your kid says something negative and inflammatory, follow these steps. Number one, grit your teeth and resist the urge to immediately contradict him. Number two, think about the emotion he is feeling. Number three, name the emotion and put it in a sentence. 
With any luck, you'll see the intensity of the bad feelings diminish dramatically. Good feelings can't come in until the bad feelings are let out. If you try to stuff those bad feelings back in, they will marinate and become more potent. For example, when a child says, I hate Jimmy. I'm never playing with him again. Instead of, of course you will. Jimmy is your best friend, and we don't say hate. Try, boy, sounds like you're really angry with Jimmy right now. Or, something Jimmy did really annoyed you. When a child says, why do we always have to have pancakes? I hate pancakes. Instead of, you know you love pancakes. They're your favorite food. Try, sounds like you're disappointed about pancakes for breakfast. You're in the mood for something different. When a child says, this puzzle is too hard. Instead of, no, it's not. It's easy. Here, I'll help you. Look, here's a corner piece. Try. Oh, puzzles can be so frustrating. All these little pieces could drive a person nuts. You are giving your child a crucial vocabulary of feelings that he can resort to in times of need. When he can wail, I am frustrated! Instead of biting, kicking, and hitting, you will feel the thrill of triumph. Very important point. All feelings can be accepted. Some actions must be limited. I'm not suggesting that you then stand by and cheer as Junior slugs his friend Jimmy in the nose, or that you immediately start cooking up a mushroom and cheddar cheese omelet for your demanding toddler who has just complained about the pancakes. Just accept the feeling. Often a simple acknowledgement of the feeling is enough to diffuse a potential meltdown. For those times when it's not enough, you'll find more tools in Chapter 2. What? You're impatient? You want the entire book stuffed into Chapter 1? I hear you. It's annoying to be strung along like this. If I could fit it all into one paragraph, I would. Like most great endeavors, this accepting feelings thing is easier said than done. I'm going to reminisce about a few, among many, of the times when I found it difficult to follow this seemingly simple path. To me, the beautiful take-home lesson of these stories is that you can mess up endlessly, and it's okay. You can fix it. You can wander from the path, get stuck in the bog, pull yourself out, scratch your mosquito bites, and move on down the road. The itchy spots will heal. The mud will wash off, and your journey will be pleasant again for the next little bit. When a conversation was turning to conflict, my mother used to gesture wiping a slate clean and say, erase and start again. But that's old school. She's from the generation of chalkboards. Have kids even heard of chalkboards these days? Some parents in my groups have used the word Rewind as they walk backward out of a room and then re-enter with more accepting words. Even that has an old-fashioned sound now that cassette tapes have become a thing of the past. 
What would be the modern equivalent of asking for a second chance? Perhaps yelling, Control-Alt-Delete, or Reset, with the motion of a finger pressing an imaginary button? The important thing is to give yourself endless chances, whatever imagery you choose to use. Here are a few examples from my years as a mom of toddlers, where I managed to change course midstream and save my little parenting raft from upending in rough waters. The Disappointing Sponge Creature Sam, at age three, has little sponge eggs that you drop in warm water where they hatch into little sponge animals. He has decided he will hatch one a day to make them last. He drives me crazy asking, is it the next day yet? But sticks to his plan. On the third day, two little horses come out attached by their noses. Sam, what is it? Me, needing it to be good. Oh, look, honey, it's a mommy and a baby horse. Sam, no, it's not. You can't even see their faces. Me, yes, you can. See, they're kissing. Sam, I don't like them. Me, getting desperate. I could draw their noses on with a pen. Sam, I will never like them. Me, foolishly persisting. I could cut them apart with scissors so their faces will be easier to see. Sam, I will never, never like them. They are bad. Me, finally seeing the light. Oh, I see. You don't like the way their faces are squished together. Sam, yeah. I'm going to play with the penguins instead. Why did I refuse to acknowledge his feelings for such a long time here? I just desperately wanted to make it better, fix the problem, protect my child from sadness and disappointment. Let's be honest. I wanted to protect myself from his sad emotions. Who enjoys a wailing child? but he, just as desperately, needed his disappointment to be heard before he could move on to happier feelings. Here's another time Sam was disappointed and I had trouble accepting his feelings at first. Where in the world is the videotape of Carmen Sandiego? In this story, Dan is five and Sam is three. Me, Dan. I taped Bill Nye the Science Guy for you. Sam, did you tape Carmen San Diego for me? Me, no. Sam, oh no, starts crying. Me, you didn't ask me to tape it. Dan asked me to tape Bill Nye. How many times has a nice, reasonable explanation like that to a crying child worked for you? Sam, continues to cry, doesn't go for my logic. Me, irritated with him for being so whiny. Sam, it's on every day of the week. You can see it tomorrow. Sam, cries harder, heading for total meltdown. Me, switching gears. Boy, you sound so disappointed.
You really like that show a lot. Sam stops crying. It's my favorite show. Me, tell me what you like about it. Sam, I like the way the dancers flip around and the machines make smoke and they have to catch the bad guy. It's so cool. And we proceed to have a nice civilized conversation about the coolness of Carmen Sandiego. Why again, with all that I know, was it initially hard for me to just accept the darn feeling? Well, since you're asking, I'll tell you. I was sure my son was having an outsized reaction to a trivial matter. To me, a missed TV show does not qualify as worthy of a meltdown. But a child's emotions are just as real and important to him as our grown-up emotions are to us. The best way to help a child get over it is to help him go through it. Here's one more story where I found it very challenging to accept the emotion. Block Wars I have that familiar sinking feeling as I watch my one-year-old Sam approach my three-year-old Dan, who is building with blocks. Dan takes a guarding position. Me. Dan, let the baby have a few blocks. He just wants to play with you. Dan, no, no, I'm making something. Me, come on, Dan, he'll just play with them for a minute. You know how babies are. Sam is upon the blocks. Dan shoves him and he falls down, wailing. Me, Dan, what is the matter with you? Now you made the baby cry. Clearly, this is not a self-esteem-enhancing conversation. The good thing about being a parent is that if you blow it the first time, you almost always get another chance. In this particular case, the same basic scenario recurred several hundred times, so I had ample opportunity to practice. Here I am in a finer moment. Dan guarding blocks. Baby approaching. Dan. No, no, no. Me, acknowledging and identifying his feelings. Oh, no. Here you are working on something special, and the giant baby is coming to grab it. How frustrating. Dan, here, here, here. He swiftly tosses a handful of blocks to the floor to distract the baby and moves his creation to the coffee table. Me. Wow, you figured out what to do to keep that baby happy. What made it so difficult for me to acknowledge my son's feelings the first time around? Well, because I was sure this desire to knock a sibling on his head over a few blocks was so wrong that I needed him to understand it now and not indulge this aggressive impulse for even a split second. Yet it was only by showing respect for his strong feelings about his work that he was able to move past aggression. When I tried to dismiss his feelings, he had to fight his brother and his mother. We do these things automatically, protect against sad emotions, dismiss what we see as trivial emotions, and discourage angry emotions. We don't want to reinforce negative feelings. To acknowledge them seems counterintuitive. You may be wondering, 
Isn't there a time when we have to explain to the child why he must do something? And don't children need to be told to respect other people's feelings? The answer is yes. But we are not there yet. Without having their own feelings acknowledged first, children will be deaf to our finest explanations and most passionate entreaties. My pint-sized next-door neighbor illustrated this very eloquently the other day. I had promised to take care of little Jackie so that her mother could get some important paperwork done. Babysitting Failure Jackie, three years old. I want to go home. Me, you just got here. Let's stay in the yard for a while. We can play on the swings. Jackie, no, go home. Me, your mom has to get some work done. We can have fun over here. Jackie, no. She runs back to her own house. Me, calling her mother. Is Jackie okay? Jackie's mom, she's fine. Me, I'm sorry it didn't work out. Did she say why she wouldn't stay? Jackie's mom, she just told me Joanna said, blah, 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 blah. Hey, how dare she? I'm a communications expert. But when I didn't acknowledge her feelings, all she heard of my effort to persuade her to stay was blah, 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 blah. Children depend on us to name their feelings so that they can find out who they are. If we don't, our unspoken message is, you don't mean what you say, you don't know what you know, you don't feel what you feel, you can't trust your own senses. Children need us to validate their feelings so they can become grown-ups who know who they are and what they feel. We are also laying the groundwork for a person who can respect and not dismiss the needs and feelings of other people. Okay, fine. Can we move on now, you ask? We need chapter two already. I'm not going to insist that you stay here in chapter one. Skip ahead if you'd like. But I'm going to linger here a bit longer. This idea of accepting feelings is so big, so important, then I'm going to explore some variations on the theme before I join you up ahead in the next chapter. I'm betting that if I can spend more time accepting feelings in difficult situations, a lot of my conflicts will dissolve without even glancing at Chapter 2. Here are some more ideas about how to make this powerful tool of accepting feelings work for you. Very important point. Sit on those butts. It is so very tempting to follow up a perfectly lovely statement accepting a feeling with the word but. We worry that our kids will think we approve of their negative behavior when we acknowledge a negative feeling, so we sabotage our good intentions by saying, I understand you are furious, but you cannot hit your sister. I hear how upset you are about your brother wrecking your Legos, but you have to understand he's just a baby. I know you want to stay and play, but it's time to pick up your brother. I know you're in the mood for chocolate chip cookies, but we don't have any in the house. But takes away the gift you've just given. 
It's like saying, I hear how you feel, and now I'm going to explain to you why that feeling is wrong. Imagine hearing someone say, I'm so sorry your mother passed away. But hey, she's dead, you're alive, tears won't change it, let's move on. If you feel a butt bubbling up, you can replace it with this handy sentence starter. The problem is. It can be irritating to have to deal with a baby when you're trying to build a spaceship. The problem is, babies don't understand about Legos. How disappointing to find an empty box when you're in the mood for cookies. The problem is, it's too late to go shopping. The problem is, suggests that there is a problem that can be solved without sweeping away the feelings. Perhaps you will find a table where you can set up the Legos out of reach. Maybe you will add cookies in big red letters to the shopping list and stick it on the refrigerator. Tony, a no-nonsense mom in one of my parenting groups, complained that she wasn't happy with this phrase. It's not always a problem she protested. Why does everything have to be a big problem? So there are no cookies right this second. Get over it. I had to think. Darn it, that's my go-to solution, and this woman is rejecting it. I have to accept her feelings about it. I better come up with something else quick. Thankfully, a phrase my mother used came to me. Ah. Try this, I offered. Even though you know. Even though you know it's too late to go shopping for cookies, you'd sure like to have some right now. Even though you know it's time to pick up your brother at the bus stop, it can be exasperating to have to leave the playground when you're having fun. As a bonus, you've taught him a new vocabulary word. Even though you know is not off-putting because it gives your child credit for understanding the problem, while at the same time letting him know that you empathize with how strongly he feels. Tool number two. Acknowledge feelings with writing. Seeing their feelings and desires written down in black and white can be very powerful, even for pre-readers. Carry paper and pencil when you go shopping so that you can add to your child's wish list. It will come in handy when you are on that unavoidable dreaded shopping trip to the toy store for a birthday gift for somebody else's child, and your own child is presented with thousands of temptations and absolutely no understanding of financial limitations. Instead of explaining to your child why she should not whine for a new toy because she just had her birthday last month, and she shouldn't be acting like such a spoiled brat. Has that speech ever worked for anyone? You can write down everything she wants on her wish list. It is satisfying to a kid to have a physical list of her desires. And you can keep it posted on your bulletin board and refer to it when holidays and birthdays come up. But won't that contribute to their feeling that every desire must be gratified? asks Tony, the straight shooter in my group. On the contrary, I countered. 
How many times have we given in and just bought some stupid thing we don't need to avoid a public tantrum? Writing down wishes is a different way to avoid a tantrum without spoiling your child. Think of it as an opportunity to accept feelings while limiting actions. Having their feelings acknowledged actually helps children accept that they can't always get what they want. In the toy store, you can say, Oh boy, that is a really cool unicorn. You like the sparkles on his mane and the pink and orange stars on his rump. Let's write it down on your wish list. Who knows? Maybe she'll save her allowance or request it from Aunt Bertha on her birthday. Or perhaps in a few weeks or months, her tastes will change and it will drop off the list. The important thing is that she has a parent who listens to how she feels when she yearns for something. And that helps her develop the important life skill of deferred gratification. And how about when one child needs something and we have another child without any need? Do we spend the extra money resentfully just to preserve the peace? Put up with hurt feelings and wailing? With this skill, we can honestly empathize. Even though you know you don't need new PJs, it's still hard to see your brother get a new pair. Let's write down the colors you like so we'll know what to buy when you need them. After a session on acknowledging feelings, Michael, a dad who was almost always eager to experiment, reported back to the group. Michael's story. Cookie magic. My two-year-old, Kara, wanted chocolate chip cookies. I wrote the word cookie on a piece of paper for her inside a circle that was supposed to look like a cookie. She added the dots for chips. She was amazingly content to carry around that piece of paper. It was like the word was a magical talisman. Usually she doesn't give up when she wants something. No matter how many times we tell her, we just don't have it in the house. Tool number three, acknowledge feelings with art. Sometimes words, written or spoken, are not enough to express a strong feeling. If you are feeling creative, try art. You don't have to be Rembrandt. Stick figures will do. Maria is the mother of one-year-old Isabel and three-year-old Benjamin, a child who has major meltdowns many times a day. Maria's story, train wreck. Benjamin is obsessed with trains these days. He loves to make elaborate tracks and crossings and push the trains uphill and down. But sometimes the trains or the tracks fall apart. It's amazing how quickly Benjamin can melt down into a major tantrum, and then the trains and tracks go flying. The other day, I was at the train table, and sure enough, the trains crested the hill and started falling apart on the way down. There was this pause, and I could see Benjamin was about to lose it. But since I had just taken the workshop, I did not say, it's okay, we can fix it, don't worry. That's what I'd normally say, and then he'd scream and throw things. This time I said, this is frustrating. You don't like the trains coming apart. He looked at me and didn't scream. I had a blackboard next to the table, so I grabbed it and said, let's draw how you feel. I drew a sad face. Is this how you feel? 
He nodded. I made a tear coming out of the eye, and he said, draw another one. I drew more tears. He reached for the chalk, and I could see him get a little glimmer in his eye. He drew some gigantic tears. Then I drew another face that wasn't quite as sad. Benjamin had the hint of a smile at this point, so I drew a happy face. He started giggling. We went back to playing with the trains. Tantrum averted. Anton is on the autism spectrum, and it can be particularly hard for him to have his expectations thwarted. His mother, Anna, shared this story with the group. Anna's story, The Tragic Nap. I had promised Anton that we would stop at this really cool playground on the way home from his aunt and uncle's house. But we left late, and by the time we passed the playground, Anton was asleep in the car, and I certainly wasn't going to wake him. I was hoping he would sleep through the night, but of course he woke up when his dad was carrying him in from the car. When he realized that he missed the playground, he started crying and saying, You lied! You lied! I tried to be patient. I explained to him that he was sleeping, but that made him madder. Finally, I said, you really like that playground. Even though you were sleeping, you still wanted to play there. You wanted us to wake you up. Yeah. I grabbed a piece of paper and a pencil and I started drawing. What's your favorite thing at the playground? Swings, he said. So I drew them. Put in the big slide. I drew that too. He drew a snowball on the slide. How about the bridge? Yeah. I drew that. Then I put a cat on the bridge and a boy. He wanted to tape the picture on his wall, so we put it over his bed. It was a good save to the evening. Michael was enthusiastic about giving the art solution a try. He came in with this story. Michael's story, Fireballs. I went to wake up four-year-old Jamie for preschool. He burrowed down under the covers and said he was not getting up, not going to school. He hated school. I gave him a little back rub and said, I can see you are not ready to get up. I'm going downstairs to make breakfast, and you can come down when you're ready. I'll have a paper and crayons for you so you can draw me a picture of how bad school is. In about five minutes, Jamie came pounding down the stairs and flung himself into his chair at the kitchen table. Where's the paper and crayons? Oops, I guess I didn't really believe he would go for it. I quickly grabbed the supplies for him. He started drawing furiously. I looked at it and asked him, what are these big red things bouncing all over the page? Those are the fireballs at the school, he said emphatically. He sounded so convincing, I actually asked him if there were really fireballs at the school. No, he answered as scornfully as a four-year-old can say that word. Then he ate breakfast and went to school happily. Never found out anything else about those fireballs. Sometimes pure art is not enough. Maria's three-year-old son, Benjamin, often gets so angry he hits himself and his mom. Here's what happened when she invited him to draw his feelings. Maria's story, performance art. 
Benny was mad because he didn't get to go with his dad this weekend. He was moping around and kicking things. I got out a pad and some crayons and said, show me how mad you are. Benny said, no, and threw the crayons down. It wasn't working, but I needed a story for the group, so I kept on trying. I took the crayon myself and said, you are this mad. I made angry marks, kind of attacking the paper. The crayon ripped through, which really got Benny's attention. He grabbed the crayon and started slashing at the paper. That was satisfying to him. Then he grabbed the paper in both hands and began to rip it into little pieces. I kept saying things like, wow, you are this mad. When the paper was completely shredded, he looked at the pile and started giggling. Look how mad I was, Mommy. Yeah, you were really mad. That poor paper. It looks like a tiger tore it up. He walked off and asked for a snack. I gave him some apple slices. Every once in a while for the rest of the day, he walked over to the pile of paper and said, look how mad I was, with great delight. Very important point. Match the emotion. Be dramatic. Some of the parents reported that when they tried to acknowledge feelings, their kids seemed to get even more furious. It just wasn't working. I asked them to give me an example. Tony said, I told my son Thomas, you seem angry. Thomas reacted with annoyance. I don't seem angry. I am angry. When I heard Tony's calm, soothing tone, I said, Aha, your words are telling me you understand, but your tone is telling me to calm down. There is nothing so infuriating as being told to calm down when you're angry. Sarah, another mom in the group, immediately agreed. Those are two words my husband is never allowed to say to me. If he dares, I will rip his head off. Imagine this. You call me and say, What a horrible day. The kids were totally hyper and it was pouring rain outside, so they were climbing the walls. I finally got it together to take them out to the movies. And it turned out the paper had the wrong time, so we had to go home and everyone was whining and crying. In the most irritatingly calm, soothing, sing-song voice I could muster, I said, Oh, you seem frustrated. It's okay to feel frustrated with your kids sometimes. The group reacted with rolling eyes and threatening shakes of their fists. Okay, okay, give me another chance. Is this better? This time I spoke with real emotion. Oh my gosh, how frustrating. Sounds like one of those horrible days when everything is against you. This time I heard the word, yes, muttered by several people, and I felt a little safer. Always good to have the tools to soothe an angry crowd. That would at least be an acceptable start, snapped Tony. I don't like all this sugary fake stuff. It's important to be genuine when you acknowledge feelings. Nobody likes to feel manipulated. Reach inside and find that emotion. Be real. My group went home and went to work. 
The next week, they reported some big changes. Maria's story. All-terrain bicycle. You already know that Benjamin melts down over the littlest things. I realized that I often take this kind of fake soothing tone with him out of fear that I'll send him over the edge. It never works. Last night he had a meltdown over having to put his new big boy bike away at dinner time. The way he was screaming, you'd think he had a life-threatening injury. This time, instead of trying to calm him, I got loud. I said dramatically, you want to keep riding your bike. He said, yes, with a trembling lip, holding back tears. I said, who cares if it's dinner time? I bet you'd be happy to eat while riding. Another yes from Benny. I bet you'd like to ride that bike in bed when it's time to go to sleep. You'd ride it in your dreams. Yes, again, but now he'd stopped crying and was looking at me with curiosity. You'd be happy to ride your bike underwater at your swimming lesson tomorrow. Now he was laughing. And just like that, our little guy came in to dinner. Michael's story. Born free. My wife Jan has trouble dressing our daughter in the morning. Kara's only two, but she can really put up a fight. She'll twist and wail because she likes to be naked. It's a real wrestling match. Jan tries to gently acknowledge her feelings and explain why she has to be dressed to go to preschool, but it hasn't helped. After our last session, Jan decided to try a more dramatic tactic. I heard her yell, You like to be a nudie! Nude all night and nude all day! Nude in the house, nude in the car, nude at school! Then I heard Kara yelling, Nudie! 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 I guess Jan was putting her clothes on the whole time because she came downstairs fully clothed, and Jan said it was a breeze to dress her. Tool number four. Give in fantasy what you cannot give in reality. Sometimes a child wants something that it is impossible to provide. Your first impulse is usually to explain why she cannot or should not or must not have her heart's desire. That's the rational approach. And how does that work for you? Not well, you say? Your kid isn't going for your logic? As soon as you begin your explanation, she covers her ears and screams? You are not alone. A child in emotional distress is unlikely to be soothed by well-reasoned discourse. A terrific tool for moments like these is to give a child in fantasy what you can't give in reality. When your child is crying in the car because he's thinking about the candy you didn't buy him at the mall, it's not the right time for a lecture on tooth decay. Admit it, candy tastes good. Wouldn't it be nice if we could eat candy every day and nothing bad would happen to our teeth? What would we have for breakfast? M&Ms or lollipops? And how about lunch? Encourage your kids to chime in. I recall a memorable ride home when my three boys happily imagined a world where the car itself was made out of sweets and even the road was paved with candy. You could take a rest stop and nibble on the bumper or crumble off a little piece of pavement if you felt like having a snack. Sarah is a preschool teacher in our group. 
She is also the mother of seven-year-old Sophia, five-year-old Jake, and Mia, who just turned three. She reminisced about a stressful time in her life when fantasy pulled her through. Sarah's story, The Pink House. We had been renting a one-bedroom apartment. And now with the second child, space was getting tight. We were finally making the big move. We had closed on a house. We were excited but anxious because we were stretched to our limit with the closing costs, and we were second-guessing ourselves all the way to the bank. As I was driving Sophia to preschool one morning, she started whining. I hate the new house. I know that little kids don't like change and that it was natural for her to be upset about the move, but that didn't stop my instant irritation. I snapped at her to stop whining. Then I launched into a lecture about how the old apartment was way too small and in a bad neighborhood, and in the new house, she would have her own bedroom. I went on and on until I glanced over and noticed that she was crying. That brought me up short. Boy, you really don't like the new house. You would choose a different house, she said. Yeah! What if you could choose any house you wished? What would your house be like? Pink! Oh, a pink house! Yes, it would have pink walls and a pink roof and a pink bed. How about some pink grass on the lawn, I offered. Mom! No such thing as pink grass. But there could be pink flowers. We spent the rest of the ride happily listing all the things in the house that could be pink. The mood was saved. Later on, we did buy some pink sheets for her bed. I was able to deliver a happy child to school instead of a miserable, weepy one. At the next session, Sarah shared this story from her preschool class with the group. Sarah's story. Endless hours. Last week in our block room, a child was reluctant to begin cleaning up. Instead of giving him the standard clean-up lecture, I acknowledged his feelings by saying, It's frustrating to have to clean up when you're not finished with what you're building. He just looked at me. So I tried giving him a wish for more time in fantasy. I wish you had a hundred more hours to play. He responded, I wish I had a hundred million billion more hours to play. Then he started putting blocks away. Amazing. Maria's story, A Penny Saved. Benjamin found a penny at the park and put it in his pocket. We were driving home, and he wanted the penny, but he couldn't get it out of his pocket because he was strapped into his car seat. He was starting to scream and cry about it. Normally, I would have told him, it's okay, we can get it when we get home, which would not have helped. Or I would have tried to fish out a coin to give him while I was driving, which would have endangered the people in the next lane. But this time, I remembered the idea of giving a wish in fantasy. I said, that is so frustrating. You know what I wish? 
I wish I had a button right here. I pointed to a spot on the dashboard. Benjamin stared at the spot. And whenever I pushed that button, heaps and heaps of pennies would come pouring out over here. I pointed to the light in the ceiling of the car. Not just pennies, but every kind of coin, even coins from other countries. And they would all fall right into your lap, and you would have so much money, you could buy anything you wanted. What would you buy with all that money? A really big teddy bear, Benjamin said. How big? As big as you? Yeah. At this point, he was really into the story and very happy. He didn't lose it over the penny, which is pretty amazing if you know my son. Very important point. Resist the urge to ask questions of a distressed child. You may have noticed that we don't respond to a child's distress by asking questions. Are you sad? Did that make you angry? Why are you crying? Even gentle questions can feel like an interrogation when a child is in distress. He may not know why he is upset. He may not be able to express it clearly in words. Often when questioned like this, even adults can feel threatened. We have the feeling we are being asked to justify how we feel and that our explanation may not live up to the asker's standards. Oh, is that all it is? You shouldn't be crying about that. By making a statement instead of asking a question, we accept the feelings without requiring any justification. You don't have to figure out the cause of the feelings in order to empathize. You can say, you seem sad. Something upset you. Or even just, something happened. That kind of phrase invites your child to talk if she feels like it, but also gives comfort if she doesn't feel like talking. Tony, mother of six-year-old Thomas and four-year-old twins, Ella and Jenna, was skeptical but willing to give it a try. Tony's story, The Gauntlet. For the past few weeks, Thomas has been cheerful in the car on the way to school, but once we get there, he sits on the curb and refuses to go in. When I ask him what's wrong, he says, nothing. Sometimes he'll jump up and run in as soon as one of his classmates arrives. Thomas isn't very big on answering questions when he's upset, but I really wanted to find out what was happening. I waited until after dinner when he was in a relaxed mood to say, I notice you're not too happy when we get to school. Something makes you not want to go in. Thomas nodded slowly. Then he explained that if he goes in at the same time as the second graders, they call him a baby, and he is not a baby. He really prides himself on being the big boy in the family. He likes to wait until all the second graders are in, or at least wait for a friend so he doesn't have to go in alone. I didn't realize it was so complicated to get into school. I have more patience for him in the morning now that I understand what's going on in his head. Sarah's story. And then what? Jake came in, all red-faced and teary after playing with the neighbor children in their backyard. Clearly, he was very upset. In the past, I would ask him, What's wrong? Or, What happened? And I always got the standard responses. 
I don't know, or nothing. This time, instead of questioning him, I tried making a statement to show I understood how he felt. I said, Jake, you look mad and sad at the same time. Well, that opened a floodgate. He told me a long, complicated story about one of the neighbors pushing him off the swing. And then there were some bad words like stupid and dummy exchanged. And then there was threatening with a stick. He went on and on, and then he looked at me and, well, I didn't know what to say next. The problem is that being a parent doesn't end at the third frame like the comics in the newspaper. Don't panic. Keep listening. Tool number five. Acknowledge feelings with almost silent attention. Don't just say something. Sit there. This brings us to a small and unimpressive-looking tool of great power, the tool of almost silent attention. You can continue to listen to your child, responding with an empathic, uh, mm, oh, or huh. Often, that's all you need. By lending an attentive ear and firmly squeezing our lips together, or letting out a sympathetic grunt, we can help our children find their own way through their feelings. The gift we can give them is to not get in the way of their process by jumping in with our reactions. Advice, questions, corrections. The important thing is to give them our full attention and trust them to work it out. Sarah reported back on this tool. Sarah's story. Sibling squabbling zen. Well, I did it. My seven-year-old daughter came in just before bedtime to complain about her younger brother. Again. I have very little patience left at this time of night. All I can think is, can't it be over? He had come into her room. He had touched her toys without asking. He had teased her and so on. Usually, I try to tell her that he's just a little kid and she should be more patient, which results in her repeating the charges in a louder and more emotional voice. This time, I just said, Hmm. Huh. Oh, I see. Right out of the script. It was nothing short of miraculous. After about five minutes, she said, Okay, I'm going to read now and kissed me goodnight. I didn't have to solve anything. I feel freed.